Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you. If you're just uh, joining us or visiting with us today, my name is Dean, and I'm honored to be the uh, lead minister of this church. And uh, I was just sitting there thinking, I was just thinking through the week and different opportunities I had to interact with a lot of you, whether it was just kind of hanging out and laughing with college students after Wednesday night, playing some music with one of my dear friends here, or watching people in this church surrounded the giftedness of some of our people. It just hit me that I love what we do when we gather here on Sunday morning, but if your only experience of this church is Sunday morning, I encourage you to just dip your toes in the water or some other things that happen. We're broken, we're messed up, we're not perfect here at all, but God is doing powerful things among the people of this church, and it inspires me on a regular basis, even, even just the smiles from some folks in the youth group before I came up here meant a lot to me. Just you fired me up even as I get up here. So I, I love this church, and if you are new here, I promise you, if you give it a chance, you will too. I also am sensitive to the fact that sometimes people come to a new place and find it hard to break in, and that's okay. I encourage you to be patient with us. We do a great job sometimes, open the doors for some folks, and sometimes we get so excited about what's going on in front of us, we miss that. So we encourage you to be patient with us. Give us a try. Uh, I think there's a powerful thing that God is doing, not because of us, uh, because we believe our God is real and alive. And, and so we've been doing this series at the beginning of the year, thought it was good, in a culture where we are surrounded all the time by all sorts of different voices telling you who you are and what makes a life meaningful and all of that. Well, why don't we start uh, this, this semester kind of focusing on God looking us in the eye and telling us who we are from God's perspective. So we've been looking at this, this book uh, in the Bible called the letter to the Ephesians. It's actually a circular letter to a whole region of churches. And if you imagine we're sitting in on a conversation where God is looking his people in the eye and saying, my children, I want you to know who you really are. And so we started a couple of weeks ago and really we recognize the book is broken into about six chapters here. And so the first three are really God squarely telling us who we are. The last three we'll see is some instruction and wisdom how to live that identity out in a difficult world. So we started a couple of weeks ago in chapter one, and we heard God say, you are chosen. You were picked and you were chosen for a purpose. And part of that purpose was actually to live extravagantly rich lives, not materially, but spiritually. And talked about all the spiritual blessings we have, the incredible riches we have when we are in this incredible country, we call it, in Christ. And last week we saw this uh, beautiful picture that even, even in the most desperate places and circumstances of our lives, you're alive. You're alive in ways that you did not even know because of the one who died and was raised from the dead. And we're going to hear another piece of our identity in the passage today. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Let's hear what God has to say about who we are. This is the word of the Lord from Ephesians. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ... In Christ Jesus, you were who once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one 
and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect you know that it, you know, we're beginning into January, so it might start fading, but we're still in this kind of before and after season of the year. You know this, right? Probably have advertisements, commercials on TV, all sorts of things are going to give you images of before and after in order to motivate you to grow or to change or to lean into some new vision of life. And most of us kind of think of kind of the physical um, before and after kind of things, but for the metaphors that the text will get us, I want to think in terms of construction. I was blessed to meet one of our students who's actually working in that realm, and, and he's doing construction on a grand scale, but I want you to think of kind of renovating or, or reworking a house. So imagine this is a historic house that was renovated, and it's amazing to me what people can do with something that looks as horrible as that and transform it in the entire house. Sometimes it's just individual rooms, and so you will see things like this, and we've all had that room in the house. It just becomes the junk room, and it's horrible, and it's dilapidated. And people with a vision can come in and reform and remake that entire thing. One of my favorite ones, though, is there's actually a show, you know, Extreme Makeover, and they did a story one time of this couple whose entire home burned down, family with three children, almost all of their possessions were lost, and they ended up living in this one-bedroom trailer, so how's that for a makeover? Instead of just fixing up the place they were, they built them an over 4,000 square foot home for them to live in. That's transformative, isn't it? You think of these before and after moments. By the way, you know, most of us think physical, so I do have to kind of throw one in there. This is a, a guy who worked really, really hard at P90X and actually worked for him. All right, all right I, I play a little bit, but let, let's think about this, this before and after season that we find ourselves in, and some of it, we, we joke and we laugh because, you know, in, in January, everybody's fired up and the gyms are full, and, you know, it kind of filters down February and all that, and, and so sometimes we'll blow that off, but I, I want for a moment to say that instinct in us to say we're going to do New Year's resolutions, we're going to change things, we're going to, we're going to reform certain stuff. That, that instinct is right. There's something right deep inside the human spirit that says, I want to change, I want to grow, I want to be different and better in some way. That's driven by the God who made us. And it's interesting to me that in Paul's 
uh, description of who we are in Christ. He does all sorts of things. And in this section, what he does is he uses before and after imagery to tell us who we are. And I wanted to listen in on this Holy Spirit-inspired conversation almost as a mirror, not to look at who we are, but who we were created and intended to be. And so we come to the beginning of this, and the tone of it starts a whole lot like uh, the tone did last week in the identity section, where we realize all of us start in a before condition. So this is kind of the bad news. We all start in the before picture. (laughs) When you were born into this world, you were born into a world that, yes, God created to be good, but it has been co-opted by forces and brokenness and rebellion. And so we all start... In this before, broken, not quite ready and right condition in our lives. In fact, Paul uses pretty sobering language when he's talking to the people in this church. And remember a couple of weeks ago we said uh, most of the folks that he's addressing in this church are what they called in that day Gentiles. Uh, These are people that didn't grow up in the faith of Scripture. They didn't grow up with the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't grow up in the Jewish community knowing the promises and the heart of God. And Paul describes their condition as they started out in the world. And before we run away from it too quickly and say, isn't that terrible that they started that way? Paul is using this language in such a way all of us have this when we start in the world outside of Jesus. So listen to his language here. What what does he say in the first couple of verses? He says, before you were separate. You were excluded. You were foreigners or aliens, depending on your translation. You were outside of the border and you couldn't get in. And then that last line of this little section, he said, you were without hope, without God in the world. By the way, it might have been shocking for them to hear it. The word he uses for without God is literally the word that we get atheists from. Atheos. You are without God. You are godless. By the way, most Greeks in that culture would say, I'm anything but godless. I have a bunch of them. God says, but you don't have the one who made you. You don't have the one who formed you. You don't have the one who gives you life in your life. You are without hope, without God in the world. And listen to all the language of distance here. You are separate. You are excluded, and you are foreigners and aliens outside of the border, and you can't get in. Have you ever felt like that before? Has there ever been a time in your life when when you felt like you were on the outside of something, and it wasn't just, oh, a team I'd like to make or something like that. It was on the outside of something you desperately needed. I remember after undergraduate, we traveled in Europe for a period of time, and we weren't real smart about it. So we, we got this book, it was called Let's Go Europe. I mean, this is great, right? And so we got this book and it said, you know, when you go to Europe, you can buy a thing called a Eurail Pass. I don't know if they still do that, but you can buy a pass and you get you on pretty much any of the trains to take you all over the country. I thought, oh, this is great. And in the book, it had pictures of, of like the trains that you could go on. And it was beautiful and they had these like dining cars and all this stuff. I thought, this is awesome. All right, well, some of you are laughing because you, you understand, you, you kind of think this out. I needed lorries in my life to help me think this out. So it's a couple guys like me, me and my roommate, and we said, okay, great, we got a Euro Pass, let's just jump on the train. And we were going like three-day trip into Greece, right, on a train. Well, nobody told us that Europe Euro Pass gets you on the train, but it does not get you a seat. We did not know that. We also did not know that not all the cars had that beautiful little dining car that the other one did. So we got on the train and realized we had no seat and no food. 
It was interesting. We ended up playing, like, where do we, where do we sit? And we literally laid down in the floor. If you could picture this, there's like a little hallway that's like no thicker than this right here. Um, and and the, all the booths here were the, uh, were the sleeper cars. And I'm not making this, so you can't make this stuff up. There was an entire car full of Spanish Boy Scouts. So we're sleep, sleeping on the floor outside of Spanish Boy Scouts and, and they would come out and they would like mess around and like they were eating peanuts and dropping the shells all over us as we're sleeping on the floor. It was just it was a wonderful experience for three days, luxury trip. And, and one time they wheeled like a cart of like snacks and we bought like a box of Cheetos or something like that. That's all we had for like three and a half days. And I remember getting off the train, and we were kind of waiting in line to exchange our money, and we were so tired and, like, hungry. I know, it's three days, but we were 20. We thought we were dying. So, we were like, we, we would sit down for a little bit, then we'd get up and move in the line and all that. So, we finally exchanged our money, and, and I, this sticks in my head. We went to this little shop in the middle of Greece, and, and we walked in. We just needed someone to help us, give us some direction, point us to some food, all of that. And we walked in the door. I'll never forget this, the look on the guy's face. And I guess there were some experiences of Americans in the past. I don't know. But we walked in the door. It was very obvious. We had no idea what we were doing. And all he did was hold up his hand as if to say, don't even bother. I know it's such a small thing, but with all of that that went on, it was like everything in us died in that moment. It's like, oh my gosh, we were longing and we felt excluded and separate and aliens and foreigners on the outside. By the way, I told that story. Somebody after said, did you finally get food? Yes, we got a gyro and then it got sick. So anyway, it was a horrible trip. But have you ever felt those moments when you're on the outside? Paul said, that's what it's like outside of Christ. You may not always sense it and feel it, but that's what it's like. Here, here's what hit me this week. I was reading over this. I'm praying over this. I've taught this text before, and I thought, first time in my life when I'm thinking this, I'm like, did the Gentiles even know before Paul brought them the gospel that they were all of these things? Did they know that they were separate and excluded and foreigners? Did they know that they were without hope and without God? There is something about the nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that wakes us up to the conditions we are in that we don't even know. Again, if you would have told them you're without God, they would have said, let me give you the list of gods we've got. If he told them that they were without hope and they were separate and excluded, they would say, no, we've got our tribe, we've got our people. And we've got gymnasiums, we've got fun things to do, and we've got all sorts of crazy things that they would indulge in and all of that. And they didn't realize how empty they were. And so Paul would go to places like Athens and find a statue that said to an unknown God that told the truth deep inside that they were afraid of something and they were missing out on something. There was something empty in there. And Paul said, let me tell you the gospel. You realize outside of Christ... We are separate and excluded and without hope and without God. By the way, Paul does the same thing in a more extended way in the book of Romans. But just when all the religious people are getting really comfortable with him talking about those Gentile pagan folks out there, Paul also makes it very clear, you guys, if you're relying on your religious heritage, if you're relying on your religiosity, if you're relying on your goodness, are just as lost as the Gentiles are. So he kind of drops in a little, a little dig at the religious folks there when he said, those who call themselves the circumcision, those who call themselves the baptized, those who call themselves the holy ones who pray a lot and all of that. And he makes it very clear that was something that was done by human beings in a human body. It wasn't God's work. If you rely on anything other than the work of God, 
we are separate, excluded, apart, without hope and without God in the world. And sometimes we don't even know it. And Paul's given us pictures throughout this whole book about what that looks like. Do we, do we understand the absolute dire circumstances we and the world are in without Jesus? Do we really grasp that? And we've used images throughout this series. Remember, this is not God as an ogre or cosmic cop waiting for you to screw up and throwing you into the fire's hell. That's not the picture. We gave images a couple weeks ago. It's like, it's like an engine of a car. Your, your car was designed to be driven and, and, and lubricated by oil and cooled by oil and, and fueled by gasoline or whatever. And if you drive your car in ways that are inconsistent with the design, it will lock up, seize up, and die on you. It might not happen immediately. It'll happen. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we had an image of flowers here. So they can look beautiful. But if you cut those flowers off from being rooted in the soil that gives them life, it will look great for a while, but they're already dead. And Paul says the same thing is true. If you are not rooted in the one who made you, your life will not sustain and mean anything ultimately. Those are a couple of different images. Let's think about it this way, because Paul uses all sorts of pictures and images about what life is like outside of Christ. I want you to think about it this way. It's been on my mind because... Uh, in a couple of different discipleship groups I'm part of, we've been, we've been focusing on the, the not-so-much-fun news of sin. And, and I, I was thinking about Genesis 3. And, and a way I think through this, if you think about what happens in that moment, this is the picture of what happens in the world where, my picture of sin, where human beings declare their independence from God. <laughs> what happens when we say, God, we don't need you, we'll do it our way. When human beings declare their independence of God, one of the things you'll see in Genesis 3, but it's true when all of us do this, is I call it the three problems of life. I want you to think about it this way. By the way, this is really helpful. If you are not religious, if you're just coming to make somebody else happy, or maybe you're just putting your toes in the water, this is a helpful way for me to think through what is the story that drives your life. If you're having conversations with someone who is not a Christian, who's not a believer, again, don't beat people up. Let's talk with them. Let's listen to them. Here's a conversation piece I found that's very helpful. Here's the thing. Every human being, whether you believe in God or not, has some story, some vision, some dream that drives your life. I hope it's bigger than the American dream, but that's some people's dream. That's their vision. Some people's vision or dream is uh, the one with the most toys wins, and so they'll accumulate things. It might be compassion. It might be something else. It might be family. I don't know what it is. Everybody has some vision or dream that drives their life. Here's the challenge I would give to all of us. Is your vision, the story that you live your life by, big enough to deal with the three problems every person in life faces? Three problems. First of all, pain. Life is painful, is it not? Life hurts, and it's not just physical pain. We experience that. One of the major pains that we experience in life is relational pain. There's conflict, and there's breakdown in human relationships, and it hurts. There's conflict and breakdown in our own hearts, and it hurts sometimes. We live in a painful world. Second problem all of us have to face, religious, not religious, we all have to deal with the fact of death. Every person in here has a tombstone in your future with your name on it. Oh, this is great news, by the way. Trust me, we'll get there. But we all have a tombstone in our future. What are you going to do about that? What is your response to that? And every story, every religion has some response. Maybe you come back as a grasshopper or whatever. I'm not picking on it, but I'm just saying there, there's every, every story has some response to it. What's your response? 
the problem of death. By the way, scientists will tell us it's not just you individually. The entire cosmos is dying. Did you know that? This is great news this morning, isn't it? The whole cosmos is winding down. Entropy and all of that. Maybe it'll restart again. Who knows? But uh, it's, The world is dying. And then this last one is a little more subtle. Alienation and separation. What do I mean by this? Obviously, if you're religious, you sense this distance between you and the one who made you. But I'm convinced that every human being that has ever lived deep inside, in their honest moments, knows that they are not fully satisfied with the world as it is and they as they are. Here's a great passage, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Ecclesiastes 3. This nugget that's dropped into this book that sounds cynical, it's actually not. It's a book written by somebody who loves life. The problem with it is it doesn't, it doesn't stay there. <laughs> It's fleeting like a vapor. This is what he says. I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. What is hard about being human? He says this. God's made everything beautiful in his time. It's great. But he has also set eternity in the human heart. Doggone it. And no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There is this thing called eternity inside of us. You might not use that language, but I promise you there is something in the human being that longs for more than just the world as it is. I was a philosophy major in undergraduate, don't pick on me, but my, one of my teachers called it this. So here's a little word to impress your friends at a coffee shop. It's called existential anxiety. You want to have fun with that one? Existential. We all struggle with our existence in some way. And let's just think about this for a moment. It didn't have to be that way. Think about the animal world. I think about my sister. I had this wonderful dog for a long time, a beautiful German shepherd. His name was Atticus. And let me tell you something Atticus never faced the entire time he lived. He never got up one morning, walked in front of a mirror, and said, you know, I'm putting on a few pounds. I've had cats my whole life. You know, cats never get up and think, doggone it, it's really weighing on me that I think I, I've lost a step and I can't get to the mice as quickly as I did before. I know it sounds silly, but there's a sense in which the writer here is struggling with the fact that, man, life would be easier if we were able to just take it like it is. If we just got up and it is what it is, and yeah, we get old and we die, but there's something in the human spirit that longs for something more. There's some angst inside of us that says, I want something more than this. I love the way C.S. Lewis said, if you have a longing in your heart for a world that is not satisfied by this one, perhaps you were created for a different one. I'm not talking about floating away when you die in heaven. I'm talking about the world as God intended it to be. Every human being has to struggle with these issues of life. You woke up. You were born into a world that was in a before condition. Everything cries out for something to be different. Again, like last week, it's a little heavy, is it not? But like last week, I want you to know this isn't the point. All of this is not the point. Paul uses the same language he used before, which is that was then, before, you were strangers and aliens. Last week we heard after all of that you were dead, but God. This week he said all of that is horrible, but now in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Just take that in. Verse 13, circle it. It's, it's the verse here. I told some folks, I think on Wednesday night, I was sitting in my office Tuesday afternoon, and I was just kind of jamming on sermon work, and I was studying this stuff, and I've got a little form kind of that I go through that, that makes me slow down, and I know not when I talk, but it makes me slow down when I study and ask some questions I wouldn't otherwise ask, and one of them that was on there just grabbed me this week. 
not my question, but it's a question that, that, that I think about every week when I look at the text. And, and the question is this, what is the center of gravity of the text? I love that question. I think it was Fred Craddock. What is the center of gravity? In other words, don't preach on the peripheral stuff. Find what's right at the heart of it. And I wrote down this verse. This is the center of gravity. And guys, I'm sitting in the office and I just tears fill my eyes. Does, it, does that scripture ever hit you? Does it ever hit you? When you just feel it? The way he used to be, the way life used to be. And then he just drops this in there. But now, in Christ, you who are separate and excluded and far away and without hope and without God, but now you who are far away have been brought near, infinitely near in the blood of Christ. Isn't that glorious? God took the initiative in Jesus to pull us in. By the way, in their setting, think about it this way. Paul is talking about this cosmic, amazing universal gospel in the sense of the word like in, in, in Ephesians 1 it said God's reconciling all things to himself in Christ but sometimes we've got to start really practical in our face like the small picture of God's big picture and that's what he's talking to them about he said the whole world is falling apart the whole world is in a before condition all of the relationships but he said what I've got to talk to you about is this division in your own church between Jews and Gentiles that was the struggle then between Jews and Gentiles, uh, the pagan outsiders and the good religious insiders. And he said, you guys, it wasn't just conflict. Did you catch his word? In Christ, he broke down the dividing wall of, did you hear it? Hostility. It's conflict. Don't, don't think of, oh, just a little kind of disagreement. Think uh, Taliban and U.S. Marine. Think Russian and Ukrainian kind of hostility. That's what's going on between Jews and Gentiles in their day. And it happened on both sides. Gentiles literally enslaved them and abused them, especially those in power. And they would take over their temples and their, corrupt their whole systems. And they were oppressed and taxed and all of that. But don't, don't hear it just one way. The Jewish people were also hostile to them as well. They called the Gentiles dogs. And they wouldn't even eat with them. You see this even after the resurrection of Jesus, even people as significant as Peter, the apostle, will struggle with sitting down at the table with a Gentile person. There was that kind of conflict. And Paul said, I'm talking about this big, huge thing, but can we start with this thing that's right in your face, Jew and Gentile coming together in Christ? Because here's the picture. That's a symbol for the big deal. Because what's the big deal? What's the message of this text? He's saying God is doing a makeover, but it's not just a house. It's not just a person. He's doing a makeover of the entire broken world. He's fixing all of it. So Paul says, can you look in your own community at the places you're fragmented and divided and in conflict and realize, start there because God's doing everything. We think about how in the world did he do this? And just for a moment, can we just love Jesus? There's a thousand ways we can describe this, but here's the way I think about it. Jesus came to this planet to fix the broken world for us, and he didn't do it from a high perch, high and mighty, and disconnected from everything. Hear this. He experienced every one of the three problems of life. You realize that? He took on personally all of those three problems of life. Pain, death, alienation. Let's think about this real quickly. Jesus took on pain for us. Like he hurt for us. He didn't have to do that. He could have been robotic. He could have been disconnected. He took on pain for us. And don't just think physical pain. We all know, don't we? The hardest pain we deal with is relational usually. 
Who is it in your life that hurts you more than anyone else in your life? It's not the stranger, it's the people closest to you. Relationships are hard. And Jesus did this astounding thing. Have you ever thought about this? Instead of just preaching to the masses, he said, I'm going to get 12 guys and I'm going to live with them day in and day out. And let me tell you, it was painful for him. It's almost comical, but just here's a great example. Just go read the book of Mark sometime and you will find how insane the disciples were. They're great too because they were committed to Jesus, but they didn't get it. Don't make them superheroes. They're nuts. Favorite example of this, book of Mark. Jesus does this thing, Mark 6, right? You've maybe heard the story before. He feeds 5,000 people, five loaves, two, two fish. Feeds 5,000 people. A lot of people don't realize a couple chapters later, chapter 7, he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Then he gets in a boat with his disciples, and like any good teacher, he wants to use a visual image, a mental picture. And so he says to his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And do you know what the disciples said? Oh no, it's because we don't have any bread. We're supposed to laugh when you read that story. Like Jesus gets frustrated. Go read the story. I love this. Brings out the humanity of Jesus. He walks them through like a parent with a little child. He said, don't you remember we fed 5,000 people? How many loaves of bread were there? He said, well, well, five. And he said, well, we fed 4,000 people. How many loaves of bread were there? Seven. And then he said, I love this. Do you still not understand? (laughs) I love the King James. Are you, are you still so dull, he said. <laughs> and that's the way the story ends right there. Jesus dealt with the frustration of pain of human relationships. By the way, that's just frustration. In the time of his life, that mattered most and he was most deeply hurt. The people closest to him betrayed him. One denied knowing him, another betrayed him to his death. Jesus knows what it feels like to have the pain of human relationships. He didn't check out of that. Isn't it glorious? He took on your pain so that he might transform it and give it purpose. A lot of people try to explain pain away or eliminate it. Jesus says, I'm going to enter into your pain. And Jesus took on death. We know that on the cross. He didn't skip out and he didn't have an easy death. What about this last one, right? Alienation and separation. Have you ever heard this verse in Mark chapter 13? It is one of the most powerful words of Jesus on the cross. Does anybody remember what he cries out to God as he's on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it feels like to be on the outside and excluded in some way. We don't totally know what's going on there. But for the first time, it appears in all of cosmic eternal history, there was distance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I love the way years ago, I heard a preacher say this. Hear me. Take this in if you hear nothing else. Why did Jesus cry that cry on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? You know why? So that you never would have to. That's why he did it. I'm going to step in your place and I'm going to take every ounce of distance and not belonging and outsiderness that you've ever felt into myself and then I'm going to transform it in my body and you get to belong And that's the last part of it. What is your identity that Paul's crying out here? What is your identity? You belong. And you don't just belong, you belong together. You are connected. I say this all the time. Throughout this passage, when it says you, it's not you individually, it's what? Does anybody know me well enough to know what I say? It's y'all. 
You all are the temple of Jesus Christ. You belong. You're not outsiders. You're not strangers. You're not aliens. You're not walking in the store just crying out for God to do something. And God holds up his hand. No, he throws open his arms and he said, you are here and you are welcome here. You belong here. And God uses construction imagery here. He says, I'm building a new temple. By the way, take this in. We rush past this. The temple in their day was intended to be a glorious place, but it ended up becoming, let's just be honest, what church has become for some people, a place of exclusion. That's what the temple became in the first century. You remember the Old Testament vision? We've heard Jesus say it before, but it started in the Old Testament. God said, my house, my temple, is intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. But you know, if you went up in Jesus' day and walked up to the temple... And you went up there to pray. If you were a woman, you could only go so far. And if you were a Gentile, there literally was a wall. When Paul talks about a dividing wall of hostility, they had a picture in their mind. Because if you went there to pray and you were a Gentile and you were an outsider, you came up there and there was a wall with an inscription on it that said, if you are a Gentile, you cannot go any further or you will be executed. How's that for the welcoming of the people of God? Can we be honest, sometimes churches will find every possible way to exclude somebody instead of saying, no, we tear down walls here. God said, that's not the temple that I'm building anymore. That one's going to fall apart. And it's literally sad today. I love, I went to Jerusalem. I love it. It's beautiful. You go up to the Wailing Wall. It's kind of powerful and all that. But I'm telling you, it's sad to me that people walk up to that wall and pray to that wall. It's not about that anymore. God said, I'm reconstructing a temple a place where I will come and reside, and it's made up not of bricks and mortar, but of people. All sorts of crazy, broken, being redeemed people. That's the place. And by the way, he flips the image and the purpose of the temple. Back then, the temple building was a place where people would come to try to connect with God. What does he say here? When people of all sorts of different places and shapes and sizes and backgrounds and craziness come together in the body of Christ, who shows up in this temple? Did you catch it? God comes. God comes. Paul says you're being built together in a new temple where the Holy Spirit of the living God comes and dwells among you. Please take that in. You want an identity? Yeah, money, power, significance, all that. Can you imagine saying, I get to be a place where the living, resurrected Christ comes and lives among us and through us and in spite of us? Don't ever underestimate the power of a unified body of Christ. I've got to experience this in a powerful way, several years in a row. In fact, my dream, I talked about it with the, there's a, a group of ministers and pastors that pray together once a month uh, of all different groups and denominations, and I, I'm privileged to be a part of that. And I just kind of threw it out to the guy at Grace there, Brian. I'm like, I don't know if this is something we want to do here. This is my Pray about this. It's something that would be fun to do here to me. But we did this thing called Awaken Nashville. I, I didn't start this, but there's a guy that used to be the campus minister at Lipscomb University, and then Donaldson Church of Christ planted a church that is really reaching the city in some powerful ways in Nashville. And one of the things God put on Dave's heart to do is I'm going to start this little very simple thing. We can't do a lot of things together in churches of different groups or whatever, but we can pray. And he said, what if we called the Church of Nashville, not one group, not one heritage, but the Church of Nashville, whoever would take part in it, just to pray. And check this out for a vision. To pray for every, the names of every person 
in the city of Nashville. And there was a gathering or two. This was kind of powerful. This was not this was not most of the churches. This was some of the organizers and leaders went to the historic Ryman Auditorium at the beginning and the kickoff and prayed and worshiped together. But, but the real power of this was this simple packet that we got. And we just gave it out. Every church did it in their own way. They got a packet. And, and the p- most powerful part was this little prayer card here. And there was eight names. You were given eight names. They just, just kind of the little census service. You can buy the, the names and the addresses of people. And, and for a month, you prayed for eight names every day. As you prayed and you walked through and people would fast in whatever way they fasted and prayed for these eight names. At the end of that, you had a postcard that was kind of pre-printed and you would send it. There was no church. There was nothing. It was not selling anybody going to church. It was just saying, here's what we prayed for you for the last month. And after it was over the first year, they started telling stories about what God did when the body of Christ, listen to me, over 400 churches said, we'll pray. And not even worship together on Sunday morning, but you know what? We'll pray over these names. Over 400 churches came together as the body of Christ to pray for the city of Nashville. They told the story of this one that the, the thing hadn't even ended. 30 days hadn't even ended yet. I think a lady already sent her card out or whatever, and this guy walks in on a Wednesday afternoon to one of the churches of praying. He walked in and he said, I just need to get right with God. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to have somebody just walk into the building and say, hey, I need to get right with God. One of the guys said, great, let's just open up the book of Mark and let's just, he started talking to him about Jesus. He just shared a little bit about Jesus. Before he was even done, he said, look, I've got to get right with God. Can I get baptized? <laughs> he said, I just want to be set free. Man, I want this forgiveness you guys talk about. I want to be set free. And he was sure. <laughs> and they baptized him right there on Wednesday afternoon. Celebrated, but didn't think a whole lot of it until Sunday morning when the church came together. There was a family, this just random family came in, and they started looking. They were asking questions, looking for the guy who had baptized this dude. And they started getting a little bit scared, like, oh, no, did we do something wrong? Did we make a like, I don't know if it's offensive or whatever. And so they connected him to the guy, and, and the, this family came up and said to him, you baptized our dad on Wednesday. And what none of us knew, he didn't know. He died on Friday. So this just blew us away that you guys cared enough about him. You did this, and now he, he died, but he died right with God. And they said, this whole family said, we want to get right with God. <laughs> and so it's just like the book of Acts. It said the whole household was baptized. They came to Christ. By the way, they had a way of knowing, like, the numbers of the packets they sent out. They said, is there any way we could find the lady who prayed for us? And they found her. And did you know she was going through a really tough, just physical season of her life? Because her house looked like the before picture. She had no kitchen. She had no working bathroom. <laughs> she just kind of got up in the morning. She said, I made this commitment to pray for these people. So I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to read some scripture and I'm going to pray over these people. And lives were changed. Isn't it astounding the power of the resurrected Christ that comes in the body of Christ coming together in unity as one? That is who you are. And our glorious Father God, we come to you and give you praise Because you stand ready to show us more than we ever asked, dreamed, or imagined. Not because of us. Because the resurrected one who is among us. Because of your Holy Spirit that is poured out on us. All to draw us in closer to you, God. I beg you, Father, help us first to receive that identity. Not to run away from it, just to take in a higher calling and a higher identity than anything the world would give us. And then, Father, empower us to live out that identity together as one body of Christ. In the glorious resurrected name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.